Hello and welcome to Series 4, Episode 10, the final episode of Bath Geeks, a military aircraft obsession. I'm Jamie Gordon. And I'm Ginny Carlin. So, Ginny, we come to the end of the season. How has that happened? Oh, I know. I feel a little bit like I should be, you know, like people bringing biscuits when it's the birthday or, or it's the sort of end of term or something. Or maybe I should have made you a friendship band because it's like the last day of camp or something, you know what I mean? And we can we can have a little cry and, and uh, promise to email each other every week, that kind of thing. Could do. Slight logistical problems there, what with you being in Canada and me not being in Canada. <laughs> Has anything sort of social media-wise or anything anywhere attracted your attention this week? Well, there is, Jamie, and I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, Norse Airways landed a 787 Dreamliner in Antarctica on an ice runway. And I've got to tell you, the, the visuals for it are just absolutely stunning. You can imagine sort of blue sky, uh, white, you know, white ice runway, white 787, lovely blue graphics on the side of the aircraft. It just looked beautiful. It came in, everybody's out watching it. I mean, there's no way that it's going to be sliding off the runway, you know what I mean? There's no chance of that. Huge. I read it was 3,000-yard runway and uh, watched it as well. Obviously, not first-hand. I wish I could have been there, but uh, watched it take off again. It was just absolutely beautiful. And uh, on all the crew got out and had their photos taken and everything it just it just looked spectacular you know what i mean it was a deliberate act i take it <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I believe so he didn't just go oh let's just land there yes you know because landing away from an airstrip is not something that is usually recommended but um yeah i mean i've seen um c-17s taking off from weird places and of course um all the the um scandinavian fast jet pilots they all train off uh, flying off motorways, of course, to give them the advantage on uh, location. But yeah, that's that's got to be a tick in a box, and one uh, that uh, that particular logbook will be cherished, I'm sure. But a seven eight seven, I mean, it's just huge, and uh, yeah, it, it was just so spectacular and something I think that the crew will never ever forget, and, and so nice to see. Now. I was going to say that we've gone slightly off piece this week in terms of our guests, but actually, we haven't. And, and and I guess that will become apparent during the course of the interview because I know this was something that you were very keen to to talk about, wasn't it? The air ambulance. No, absolutely. And and uh, during the interview that we've got coming up in in just a little while, then I do kind of set up why it was important to me and and why it p really piqued my interest as well. Um, I just think that our air ambulance around the country uh, are complete unsung heroes. A bit like what you said a few weeks ago about them being like the RNLI. They don't get any direct government funding and the amount of lives they save and some of the stuff that Lewis, our, our guest, was talking about, you know, that they make decisions on, well, there's a child that's hurt. They're, they're probably not in mortal danger, but if they can bring a, a bit of comfort to the child quicker, then they'll go out. Uh, just it kind of made me like draw a bit of a breath really it was it was so lovely so i think we just have to set this one up first by saying a massive thank you to you lewis and to all your colleagues on behalf of myself and jamie because we live in your neck of the woods well i do most of the time anyway and just to say this kind of came about from me living in a little Derbyshire village 
laying in bed one night and thinking, I can hear a helicopter, looking at the flight radar and seeing you guys coming to our village to a very difficult place to land. I knew exactly where it was and just the skill and the talent. And obviously everybody in the village is owing you a beer for what you did that night. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for everything that you do. So we'll, we'll kind of just start with that on behalf of everybody for the amazing job that you and your colleagues do. But just to say it's, it's the kind of East Midlands, it's the Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire um, air ambulance, but you do cover a lot wider area than that, don't you? Yeah, that's right. So we're the Lynx and Mutz Air Ambulance here. Um, we cover three and a half thousand square miles of our own patch, which is the whole of Lincolnshire, whole of Nottinghamshire. And then we do mutual aid in the neighbouring counties into Derbyshire, Leicestershire, Yorkshire and Cambridgeshire, just as they will for us, uh, the local ones to those counties, if we're on a job or you know offline for any reason. I know you've certainly been flying a lot. Um, looking at the shouts on your website, um, you come to workshop quite a lot, which is not entirely surprising. But listen, um, let's just start with your route into flying. Um, was it you building models as a kid or what interested you in, in aviation to start with? Well, the, 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 the helicopter side of things was a, a film called Deadly Encounter, Larry Hagman. Um, I saw that probably when I was eight years old. It was a little Hughes 500 uh, uh, OH-6 US military helicopter, observation helicopter, as you probably wear. Um, and there was just some random film. It was the most amazing film I've ever seen, and that was that that was the bug that started. Uh, from there, yeah, it was toys, then into models, um, and then found out there's a way to get into this uh, to do it for a living. Um, so I pursued that as soon as I could. At the age of 19, I started. So no desire for fixed wing or anything like that. It was helicopter all the way. Um, so I did. I went to uh, I went to a career show when I was younger. And my father took me, and um, it was it was heavily fixed wing based, airline based, as all the career shows generally are. And there was a little, would you believe it, a little Hughes five hundred sat in the corner, um, and it was Eastern Atlantic helicopters down at shore, and this this bright orange. Uh, Hughes 500 sat then. It just set, I think, just set the speed record for the London heli lanes. Um, and I spoke to them and figured out there was even a civilian job uh, in helicoptering, um, aside from airlines. And I remember talking to my dad about it, and you would say, you know, we were humble beginnings, so it was going to be beg, borrow, and steal to get the money to do this for, for a job. And he said, you, you're never going to have the money to do both. So do the one you want to do. And it was always helicopters for me growing up. It was the, it was the idea of levitating was fascinating. And so we, we went down the route of looking at helicoptering. I did have a go in a fixed wing. Uh, my uncle was actually a fixed wing pilot. I never met him. He died before I met him. Um, so it's in, it's in the blood uh, from way back. Um, but yeah, for, for me, it was always helicopters. So, Louis, you're based just across the A15 from RF Waddington. How much are you involved with the base, if at all? Yeah, a lot, actually. So, for this, it's 30 years. Um, next year, the, the service has been running in Lincolnshire and Nottinghamshire. And for 27 and a half of those years, this unit was based inside the wire at RF Waddington. Um, the original crew uh, had, had connections on the base. Um, when they were shaking buckets, uh, you go right back to 1994 and they would fly for three months, they would stop for a month while they fundraised enough money for fuel for the helicopter, you know, real humble beginnings. Um, and it was all just favours, um, begging, borrowing, stealing to get this thing off the ground. And it all started. And, and so there's a big thanks to RF Waddington for what they did. They gave them the first, you know, small facility, gave them the first hangarage. Um, and then for 27 years, we were 
co you know cohabiting together and they, they treated us and still do incredibly well so when um so when it came to moving over to wire and building a bespoke uh, facility we didn't want to go far the pilots didn't want to go far and uh, i don't think the RAF wanted us to go far uh, we've responded to some pretty big emergencies over the last 30 years for RAF waddington personnel um, and you know, from from their side, we were we were one of their little squadrons. The little yellow helicopter had been sat there for as long as everybody else. Um, so, but it was the perfect divorce, really, um, because it allowed them to have quite a, uh, an important operational area of the the, the airport back. Uh, it allowed us to have an ILS um, and an RMP approach down the runway, plus eighty firefighters, if God forbid we ever need them. Um, air traffic control, air traffic services. Um, so we've got a really harmonic relationship. Now the Red Arrows are here. It works really well. There's procedures in place uh, when we go out on blue lights. And um, yeah, they're, they're, they're so good to us. So a massive shout out to RF Waddington. They, um, they, they have been f- absolutely fundamental in the success of this service for the last three decades. And of course, your operational area is absolutely packed with military aviation because of Coningsby and all the other bases in the area. So how, how does that all dovetail together? You must communicate to work around each other, if you like. Yes, so um, we are what's called an alpha call sign. So if we, our call sign is Helimed 29. So if we say Helimed 29 alpha, it means we've got our blues and twos on, um, much like an ambulance or, or, or a police car going down the road. We're uh, looking for that same sort of priority. So that's afforded to us from everybody in the military and civil um and when we start up we speak to the tower still even though we're the other side of the fence we're still inside the atz we're still inside the airspace so we still operate as if we're already on the base um and everybody from coningsby uh, to waddington cranwell barkston we are absolutely littered with ref bases um uh, are, are really really good with us we get right away through they'll move air, air sources for us um they'll, they'll protect their aircraft up move them left move them right they're really really fundamental to the success of this operation. So, Lewis, will you take us through from when the radio or the phone goes to actually getting airborne, to actually getting to the hospital? Sure. Um, so, you can't see, but behind uh, behind the laptop now that I'm talking from is the operations room. In there at the minute is two pilots, a critical care paramedic and a critical care doctor making up the critical care team. We sometimes will have a third or a third person in the back, either an extra paramedic or an extra doctor. So today they're just four up, four, 14 person. And uh, the bell goes, uh, the sirens go off around the base. And that is the HEMS dispatcher, the first and one of the most important members of the HEMS team. They're sat in Nottingham at East Midlands Ambulance Control. And they're filtering through three about 3,000, 4,000 calls a day coming in and trying to find the real pointy edge of the sword jobs uh, that requires the enhanced skill and speed of the team. So they will pick up the phone. It's the bat phone, as we call it. A big red phone rings in the ops room. All the sirens on the base go off, so it tells every every crew member to head straight for the ops room. Most people are sat there anyway, ready. Uh, so it takes us probably five, five to ten seconds to answer. The first thing the uh, dispatcher will say is the town. So let's say Boston. Then they'll give a grid, uh, an OS grid, and then they will give a you know uh, uh, some intel of what the job is. It's a 52 year old male sort of you know uh, uh, in an RTC road uh, I don't know mo- mo- motorbike versus car or something. Give the basic details of the emergency call. The first 
the only bit the captain of the aircraft is listening to is Boston. So as soon as he hears Boston, he walks out the door by daytime and he goes out to the aircraft. The co-pilot stays behind and he plots the grid into some iPad software and he goes out and uh, with the medical crew and gets in the aircraft. From that call to getting wheels off the floor, it's around about four minutes. There's no planning involved by day. We just plan it on the way. Um, off the grid and when we get overhead scene we make a decision so we'll fly there as alpha on blue lights and um, we can reach anywhere in the patch within 20 minutes from from where we're roughly centrally located at rf wellington um, we'll get overhead we will pick the closest safest most legal point it has to be legal most safest point to land so we're looking for a 2d site what's 2d well it's two times the, the length of the aircraft so for this aircraft an aw169 it's about 30 meters um, or, you know, one and a half tennis courts. That's about what the aircraft needs by day. Some of the things we're obviously looking for are obstacles on the way in and out, debris or FOD, what, anything that we might damage, we don't want to do that. Um, and also access in and out of the landing area for the crew to get out and also for potentially a patient to get on board. Then the critical care team will deliver the most amazing pre-hospital emergency um, care you've, you've ever witnessed, uh, including blood, um, open open chest surgery, um, rapid sequence induction. They'll put people into a coma and put them on a ventilator and life support on the roadside, in, the, in their front room, in the back garden, wherever it is. Um, we'll then make a decision uh, as to what speciality hospital this patient is likely to need. So is it a burns job? Is it a major trauma job? Is it a cardiac job? And because not every hospital is the same, especially in Lincolnshire. Lincolnshire has no major trauma centres. So say we are in Boston and we need a major trauma centre, your closest one is either going to be Hull Royal Infirmary um, or Queen's Medical Centre. Both are going to be an hour and 20 to an hour and 40 by road. So we can obviously put them in the aircraft, fly around about 180 miles per hour direct track um, to deliver the patient there with that critical care team. The aircraft is the largest uh, HEMS aircraft being operated in the UK, so they've got the most amazing access to the patient. So in flight, they can give blood interventions and um, keep, keep people keep it alive that 20-minute that, that, that journey it takes us. After that, we deliver them to the uh, hospital and hospital team, the guys hand over. Um, but obviously, some of the doctors, like the doctor today, who's on, he's from Sheffield, one of the major trauma centres we use, so day before yesterday we delivered a patient to him uh, in ED um, so we really are bringing the hospital to the patient with, uh, with with this service you know they've got the kit and they've got the expertise most importantly um, so the whole whole thing's changed over the last 10 or 15 years it used to be swoop and scoop get down get them in the aircraft and more of a medivac get them to hospital as fast as possible but that's certainly that's certainly changed so our job our primary job as the pilots now is the the delivery of that critical care team, first and foremost. The onward conveyance of the patient uh, is still there in a capability, but primarily it's the most important thing is to get that team to the patient. Um, they, they're doing all sorts on scene. As I say, they're open chest surgery, they're straightening limbs on scene before they even get anywhere near a hospital. It's quite incredible. That, I think and that's, that, uh, that, that wraps up an average job. I think a lot of people will find it surprising that that amount of medical work goes on You know, when you get to the incident. Now, obviously... It's not all going to go well. So how do you, as as a team, both the team in the helicopter and the broader team at, at your unit, how do you deal with, you know, a shower that, that doesn't end nicely? 
Yeah, it's, it, that, that's right. You know, uh, I talked about a pointy edge of the sword. If you are going to the correct jobs for this team um, to deal with, they're, 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 they're not always going to be the, the, the best outcome. And that happens numerous times a week. So their exposure uh, to, to this trauma as a team is, 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 is unlike anything else. Um, and honestly, the way you deal with it, one of the ways you'll find in any HEMS team in the country is a very, very dark humour um, amongst the team, a closed door humour. Um, we all lean on one another. We, all, we are all friends as well as colleagues here. You know, these are the same people you're going you're gonna to witness most horrific things um, on shift with. And then, you know, the next day you're going to be having Christmas dinner together uh, in an ops room. Um, so it's, it's a small, high-performance team um, that, that have processes in place to manage this stuff. Um, but ultimately, I think you do desensitise a little bit and you find your own coping me- mechanisms to, to deal with this stuff. And, you know, you, you, you take the highs from the, the jobs that you, these, these big interventions make a massive difference in. And some days you, you'll drive home and think, yeah, today that person's outcome, that patient's outcome is going to be, is only going to have been because of this team or because of the intervention, this service that they've had today. And you, you can hand on heart do that too many times a week, probably in our area. Lewis, I mean, you called out in the most dire of situations sometimes, but how many times do you think you will have to say, we can't get there, we can't do that, we can't land? Is that quite often? Yeah, um, that's the hardest part of the job for the pilots um, to know that we've got legal limits uh, and we've got safety implications that are going to stop us. So we have to make dynamic decisions. And it's probably one of the hardest decisions you'll have as a HEMS pilot over a normal um, helicopter side of flying. Because before all the HEMS and air ambulance stuff, we're commercial pilots, whether they're ex-military, whether they've come the civilian route. They're still commercial pilots, so you only you're only going to have this pressure um, doing this job if you're involved in this industry. You know, if you're flying oil and gas offshore, you're not you're not hearing that there's a ten year old in cardiac arrest in the radio in your headset. Um, so that that takes you know an awful lot of captaincy to turn around and say no. It's it's far harder to say no than it is to say yes. Um, but it's mo- it's more important to be able to say no than it is to say yes. And you know you'll get you'll get to to two, three miles away and there's a snowstorm over and you just can't get through or, you know, you lose the, the legal limits of, of the weather, uh, which change by night because we fly on night vision goggles here. Um, and you come back and you have to just can it off. Um, but, you know, we also have cars as well. So um, we'll have a discussion. We can have a, you know, a 30 second discussion whether we don't think we're going to get there and we're going to elect to send the team on the fast response vehicles. We've got critical care cars in the hangar at the same base whilst of course, they're not they're not 200 mile an hour in a straight line. Um, they are blue light cars, so the team are going to get there, just not as fast. Um, so, uh, so, regardless, the team will get there. It's just whether they get there as fast with a helicopter or or the car. I think that's really important, and we we have that in the back of our mind. They they, they will get the team. It's just um, how fast. And that being said, I mean you're flying one of the most advanced helicopters that you can, the AW169. Um, how how fit for purpose is this helicopter and why, why was it um, sourced? Um, yeah, great question. Um, so it's, it's a really large aircraft. I think it's probably the maximum size aircraft that you'd want to see for a HEMS operation um, in our country. Um, in the UK, we have quite a lot of aircraft for 
the size of the island. Um, so we, we're doing 20 minute hops, whereas in Europe, some of their aircraft, they're flying 45 minutes to an hour um, to retrieve people. So they do a lot of retrieval and stuff like they do in Scotland because of the terrain. So for us, it's quite a large aircraft, but it's, it's a large aircraft, not because we need it to be large in terms of flying long distances, but because of the kit that we're now carrying. This thing's got a boot um, that is absolutely jam-packed with life-saving equipment, as I say. So we're carrying defibrillators, we're carrying, I mean, 11 kilograms just of blood, of real blood, uh, for transfusions. Um, all of our kit weighs in excess, a medical kit alone, carry-on kit, weighs in excess of 230 kilograms. Um, so, yeah, a hell of a lot, uh, plus the people. You can't put what we've got now into a smaller aircraft. Previously, we operated the 902, very, very brilliant, capable aircraft. Um, but in terms of the kit we're carrying and the people we're trying to carry and con constantly train, uh, we need that third seat. We need this size aircraft. Um, from a flying side of things, you know, this used to be a day VFR operation just 10 years ago. We're now flying IFR, multi-pilot, Envis, um, uh, it's, it's just going up and up and up. And with the technology increases uh, and capability increases of technology in terms of, uh, you know, the night vision goggles and the instruments um, and the RMP approaches, we, uh, you know, we're taking this stuff to the next level that, that, that's never been there for, for you know, two thirds of, of the, the, the 30 years that air ambulances have been operating in the UK. Um, just some stuff that we need to pick up on in terms of regulation and infrastructure on the floor that we're a bit behind in the UK uh, compared to the rest of Europe in terms of what we can and can't do with helicopters. So the aircraft can do it, but the regulation stops us doing it um, in terms of PINs approaches and IFR approaches and stuff like that. But it is being developed. Um, this aircraft is, is, is pretty future-proof. It's got, you know, probably another 15, 20 years in front of it on the airframe. And as the, as the capability and the regulation allows this aircraft is going to allow us to uh, to do it. Lewis, am I right in saying that you don't get any government funding? And if I'm right in that, how do you keep the aircraft in the air? Because it must cost loads. That's right. So there's no direct government funding uh, for the operation of this airframe. Um, the service costs around £8 million a year. So that's a 24-hour clinical service, and the aircraft operates 7 a.m. till 2 a.m. Uh, on the aircraft. Uh, that's two shifts. And that's 365 days a year. We also have a Nottinghamshire car as well. So we put a separate car out in the Nottinghamshire area with the critical care team in the inner city and surrounding area. So it's a, it's a, it's a massive amount of work. Uh, it's done by the most amazing people next door in the fundraising team. There's a, there's a whole army of people that, that obviously you don't get to see on social media in flight suits, in, in medical suits, wearing helmets that actually make this happen. And then behind them are the donations. Uh, the people that fundraise for us in their own time, they run marathons. It's quite incredible. Um, a lot of them are involved, uh, have been involved as, as previous patients or, or loved ones, friends of. Um, and then also, you know, the corporate side of, uh, of sponsorship as well. So it's, a, it's, it's an incredible thing that the uh, the charity managed to achieve and all charities in the UK uh, to keep, the, keep these services going. But it does mean that we as an independent healthcare provider, so we're a CQC registered healthcare provider, we can decide what we do, what direction this charity takes. We can bring in some really, really advanced medical interventions that you would not get funded if you were centrally funded from the government. Um, and it also means that we can decide what jobs uh, this service turns out to. So for instance, 
you know, if there's a, I don't know, a, a kid that's got a, a snap leg, it might not be life, it might not be life threatening, but within 20 minutes, we can deliver a team that will take all pain away from that child, you know, which otherwise might be two hours uh, before they get some real pain relief, you know, because some of the land ambulances is the only carry paracetamol. Um, whereas, you know, we can, we can get there and just fill them with the most amazing drugs and get rid of that pain like that. Um, I've been on the other end of cuts. We are previous police pilot and they cut our aircraft. Um, the government had a restructure and we lost a lot of the police helicopters in the UK. Um, that hopefully can't be done with the air ambulances because they're all independently funded themselves. Um, and that's another positive. So it's hard work, but it gives us a much, much broader flexibility. We could have a long and very long and painful discussion about the politics of why you're not funded more by, by government. But um, it's a it's fantastic that you're able to do what you do through public donation. Go to the website because you can you can donate there in any way, shape or form. This being Mav Geeks, I just would kind of wanted to round off with um the fact that you do have the old military pilot or ex-military pilot flying with you, what do they actually bring to your team which they might not um, come from, a say, a civilian through and through helicopter pilot? Yeah, uh, they have been the most paramount side of, of this. When we talk about the capabilities increasing in, in the industry, it's because of the, the, the military pilots that have been involved previously with HEMS and, and currently. So when I started flying, I would say the industry was made up of 80% ex-military pilots and 20% civilian. We're actually a complete opposite now. Uh, to our uh, unit, we are 80% civilian with just 20% to, to the pilots uh, being ex-military, both Army. When the whole Envis thing started, the night vision goggle uh, thing started, there, were, there was no civilian pilots that were flying on goggles. So, uh, you know, they, they introduced it. Um, our, our old group chief pilot, Dave Burgess, um, introduced um, Envis flying to HEMS in the UK back in 2013. Uh, and the original sign-off flight with the CA was done here by Tim Taylor, our army pilot. Um, he came out of the military with a few hundred goggles. Uh, a few hundred goggle hours now. I've got a couple of hundred goggle hours, but I know that one of them in the military, they've all been taught by the ex-military lads that the industry has, has produced. So whilst we now are sort of, um, we, you know, I can train somebody to fly on goggles, um, it started with them. You know, all this, this capability started with them. It was their bread and butter. So they brought it into our industry and developed it and brought a capability to the UK that uh, we've, we've only now had for 10, just 10 short years. That is because of them, the low-level experience. Um, and they're just, they're just good, they're good hands. The military do have a really good way of, of, of figuring out who should be and shouldn't be pilots. Wow. I mean, this is the final episode of season four, Lewis, and I think nothing more fitting than hearing about the fantastic work that you guys do. So thank you so much for, for the fantastic service that you provide. I mean, wasn't he just amazing? I just loved every second of that. Right, so I think it's only right that we kind of look back at what we've been up to in Series 4 and um, pick a highlight or two. I've got one. What about you? Um... I think my highlight, I mean, I've loved them all, don't get me wrong. I, it was very hard to do this, but I think my highlight was way back, episode one, uh, with Al Bridger, uh, being in the simulator, which was just such a treat, honestly. It was such an honour to do that. But Al himself, and to hear his enthusiasm, he gets to fly these beautiful aircraft 
every single week, um, and he's still the passion is still there. Uh, I think that I think that was my highlight was speaking to Albridge. What a lovely man! What about you? Definitely, he was the most enthusiastic man in aviation, without a shadow of a doubt. I, I mean, I loved having a guided tour of the Shackleton with Brian Withers. That was great. But what I really enjoyed, what stands out to me, is what what you managed to get done in Riyadh because I couldn't go this year for one reason or another. And you just brought that home and just brought the noise, and it was exactly what I would have wanted to hear um, from uh, that particular event. And and it was great to chat to those American guys who were just so easy to talk to and so full of uh, awe and, and love for the aircraft that they flew. Thank you, Jamie. I enjoyed Riyadh very much as well. Now, if you could have... Any guest or aircraft that we look at, your kind of dream sheets for next year, what would you like to see us do? Okay, uh, dream guest, Tom Cruise. <laughs> I think, I think why not? I mean, yes, if you're going to set the bar high, <laughs> let's go really high. Uh, I think if we can get hold of Tom Cruise, um, and I, I, don't, I don't think, you know, I don't think he's out of the way, to be honest. So that would be a dream guest. And also, I would like to talk about the F-111 because it's a beast of a machine. Um, uh, the swing-wing jet, the fact that the whole capsule ejects if you have to eject, the fact the Americans flew them without any weapons at all in the first Iraq war. Uh, it's known as the Aardvark. It's a lovely bit of kit. And I have got one or two ideas about who we can speak to about that. So that'd be on my wish list. You see, I'm getting excited already. I think my wish list, being out here in Canada, a little bit closer to the States, I would love to get over to Northrop Grumman and uh, have a little look at their L-1011 TriStar, which they've converted to send satellites into space. It's called the Stargazer. It's the last L-1011 that is flying um, in the Mojave Desert. You know, I'm thinking big. And also, I'm going to try and get to Miramar next year to the air show there. (laughs) Um, Brilliant. I mean, Riyadh is just out of this world. And I just think the cherry on the cake for me would just to be get down to San Diego and just geek. Although, Jamie, I do have to say that after that being there, you may have to revive me and put me in the cold shower. And because the temperature is so hot and seeing all those planes, I, I'm just going to be just a gibbering mess by the end of it. Well, you're in that neck of the woods, more or less, so you might as well give it a go. I thought you were going to say you are a gibbering wreck anyway. I was like, that's a bit rude, but true. Ginny, <laughs> you know me better than that. Oh, dear. I think it's time for us to say our goodbyes, isn't it, Jamie? Um Absolutely. Guys, thank you so much for joining us over this series. We've loved every single second. We've got some uh, thank yous to say to our MAV media team. That's Gisela Waldron and our producer, Sean Harper, as well, who've just done a fantastic job. And uh, we just love them to bits. So thank you guys for that. Uh, Also, if you would like to get in touch and tell us what aircraft you would like to see on the next series, we, we can't promise we'll try our best or what guests. You know, if you want any Hollywood stars, we'll try our best to get them for you. Uh, then get in touch on mavgeeks at bfbs.com. And, of course, you can now leave comments on Spotify. Uh, so we'd like you to do that. If you'd be so kind, let us know what you'd like to be hearing in the next series and what you think, thought of the last. And, of course, it might be winter, but we are just around the corner, really, from air show season starting again. In fact, funny you should say that, but RAF Cosford have already started selling tickets for their air show in 2024, that's, I believe, on the 9th of June. So stick it in your diary and we'll update you on all the others as they come in. And I think that is just about it. I think that might be the final curtain for Series 5. Although, of course, 
If you are feeling that you need a bit of extra Mav Geeks, we might put something in your Christmas stocking just around that festive period. So make sure that you keep looking out for that. Ho, 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 Ginny. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, this year. Let's do it all again next year. Have a great time. My little Mav, mate. I cannot wait. Catch you soon. Cheers. Cheers.